At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we continue to do what we try to do on this program. Turn down the noise of a noisy news cycle, get to the things that really matter, and the information you need so that we can better discern the times we live in. Going to do that a couple different ways. Uh, today. One is we've got our economist friend, government bureaucrat, although we say it with love and affection, Stephen Popek is going to be on this term. We actually recorded that segment um, that's coming up after this one before the shutdown got averted over the weekend. We were surprised. So we actually had to cut about 20 minutes out of that conversation because it was about why the thing was shut down. But we still got a lot to talk about with Stephen about government spending. We're also going to talk to Sarah Stook Later on the program, get a Brits, our UK friends version of what the GOP primary and that hot mess of a debate looked like with her. But I want to start here because they averted the government's shutdown. Basically, what happened was they passed a continuing resolution, a clean continuing resolution for 45 days. We're going to do this again. Congress hit the snooze button. And in the midst of this, we're going to have a, uh, you know, some intramurals in the GOP over Kevin McCarthy versus Matt Gates which will be entertaining, but is rather embarrassing that you got to do that at all. We'll talk about that at another time. But let's talk about the narratives surrounding what happened over the weekend and about this adjustment. Who won, the headlines will go. Well, who did this? And who, Hold on. Congress's main function is to have the power of the purse and handle the finances of the country. Let me say that again. Congress's main purpose is to have the power of the purse and to handle the finances of the country. Now, they have other focuses. They have oversight. um, But this is why they are the most reflective branch of the U.S. government. They immediately reflect us. It's the one we have the most electoral control over because the House of Representatives, we elect them every two years. They quite literally spend half their time in office running for re-election, good and bad to that. The House of Representatives reflects us as a people. And what it's reflecting right now is that we are a very unserious people that does not care about the major problems of our country. And you can howl about that all you want from whatever political or ideology you have, but that's just the truth because evidence demands a verdict. And we have decades of evidence now that we tolerate a Congress that does this. Congress gets zero praise for averting a government shutdown. Praising this Congress for averting a government shutdown would be like praising the drunk who leaves the bar, drives home drunk, drives the wrong way down the freeway, but because they got in their driveway safely, didn't kill anybody, stumbled into bed, and woke up with no penalty worse than a hangover, somehow that's a win. Because that's what happened here. They managed to avert a shutdown, but the shutdown is all political performance anyway. 
And we're going to talk to Stephen in a minute. People, you don't care about fiscal response. Yeah, I do, but nothing they're doing here is fiscally responsible. They're not really making a difference in the major issues of spending and the debt because they politically can't touch it. They had all year to deal with this. You can go back and listen. We had issues on this program that we talked about back in February before we did our break. And since we've returned the program in the fall and the summer, we've been talking about this all year that, well, there's going to be a government shutdown or there'll be some form of brinksmanship. And by the way, we may still have one in 45 days because they still haven't gotten to any of the core issues of what's going on. You don't praise people for doing what they're supposed to do, which is what most politicians want, especially Congress critters. And you really don't praise people for doing the bare minimum of not causing a disaster of their own making and then give them praise. We don't praise a fire department if they go set an arson fire and then show up and put it out and say, praise us if you know that they're the ones that started the fire. And yet we continue to tolerate a Congress to do that. There was all kinds of social media posts over the weekend. Helps put things like the Congress critters in perspective. Their job is to never get to the brinksmanship, but it's easier to get to the brinksmanship because they can get excused for all their bad behavior prior to that, and they can push through stuff they otherwise couldn't get done due to the crisis that they themselves made. No, I will not praise Congress for their continuing resolution. I will not praise anyone for averting a government shutdown, and I really have derision for people who think government shutdown is an effective tool. It's not. You're not going to get the long-term concessions and fiscal responsibility this country needs out of a government shutdown because, as we've already detailed, as we're going to talk to with Stephen here in just a second, discretionary spending is not really the main problem with the government anyway. They don't want to talk about entitlements. They don't want to talk about the massive national debt. They don't want to talk about how the interest on that debt is getting ready to surpass defense spending. No, friends, we're not going to praise the sandbox mess that is Congress. They hit the snooze button with a continuing resolution, but they didn't solve anything. They didn't do anything but embarrass themselves, our country, and us for tolerating their nonsense. And the worst part is we're going to do it all over again in 45 days or less. And in the meantime, we're going to have a nice little political fight over the Speaker of the House ship. And the Democrats are going to figure out how they're going to play that. It's more kabuki failure theater. And then they want praise when the worst don't happen. You can do that if you want to, but I'm not going to. We should stop accepting mediocrity in our Congress. But to do that, we got to remember that Congress, the House of Representatives, is the branch of government that's the most reflective of us. And that reflection is saying, we're good with all this hot mess because we'll complain about the Congress, but then we keep voting for our individual Congress critter who contributes to it. Find a mirror before you yell at Washington because a lot of this mess is our fault. It's metastasized and grown and festered for decades how Congress functions now. The dysfunction is because we tolerate it. I would encourage everybody to do this one thing. When it comes to the headlines to come on this government shutdown stuff and on the budget and on all the intricate parts, have you took time to actually look big picture of what's happened over the last few years, why we can only govern in Congress by crisis? Do you put pressure on your social media and in your discussions? Like, hey, we shouldn't legislate only by crisis. I know it feeds the media, but we, the voters, have the power to stop this whenever we want to. But like a lot of things in life, if we're just complaining about it but not doing anything about it, at some pl point, at some point, 
complacency, sins of omission, it's our fault. Not just Kevin McCarthy's, not just the Republicans, not just the Democrats, not just Congress, not just they, them in Washington. We're tolerating it, folks. This one's on us. We're going to do it again in 45 days. And if you're seal clapping the fact that we hit the snooze button, going to do it in 45 days, you're part of the problem. More hotel right after this. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. All right, another one of our old friends hadn't been on a while. Good to finally get him back to doing something productive, unlike his day job where he works at one of those four-letter government organizations. Hey, hey, the government is not going to be popular in this segment. I'm just going to warn you up front. However, we will not hold that against him, even though he's got one of them PhDs and doesn't like to be called doctor and what such. He does know what he's talking about when it comes to economics. He's also an Ordinary Times contributor when we can get him to do it. Hint, hint, Stephen Bobbitt. Great to have you back on the program, my friend. I've missed you. Well, let me talk to you, Andrew. <laughs> what are you, Cody Rhodes now? Um, fine. Uh, he also has a wonderful background in professional wrestling that we bring up every now and then before he went straight and decided to make a living with numbers. Brother, what are we going to do with this government shutdown thing? Because you're on the government side of it. I'm on the I'm not going to get a check side of it if you don't fix it. Most people are somewhere in the middle there. Let's start right here, though, because I can hear people already yelling, well, you don't care about fiscal responsibility. We have to shut down the government. Hold on. We went through this last week on the program. I actually got out the data from the government on how the government, both mandatory and non-mandatory spending, discretionary spending, not spending, how the spending is broken down by departments, which is a really important part of how the spending goes, where the government actually spends its money. And we broke it down and we went through it. What they are talking about is budget cuts in the current proposals by the hardliners in the Republican Congress. I'm not saying it's a nothing because it's not a nothing. Yes, it's billions of dollars. As far as what we're actually spending money on, though, it's a nothing. It's a it nothing. is. I like to point out to people that, one, the number of federal employees in the United States government has not increased since the late 60s. That's an interesting fact. Number Considering two. population growth, which is a number that is one of your pet peeves that you love to talk about, that's kind of incredible. Yeah, yeah. I guess some of that's offloaded on government contractors, but let's let's keep in mind that you know the number of federal employees has been pretty steady. Um, number two is you know we um we had a uh, we had a summer intern um, who came in, and this individual came in and said. Well, this is the job that you know. I knew I was coming in to to learn a bit about. I thought this team was going to be a hundred people because of how big of a job it is across the nation, and I find out there's like about ten of you. You know, the perception that this person had about how many people were doing a, a job that was covering you know nationwide things, you know, was not what it actually is in reality. Um, you know, I think you know we we also 
you know, say, yes, you, you, you talk about the discretionary side versus the mandatory spending side. The discretionary side is, I would argue, very well managed. There's not a lot, it's not a lot of spending. The growth in spending that is the political uh, kryptonite that no one talks about is on the mandatory spending. And Andrew, which programs are those? Yep. And here's the thing, and you're the economist, you talk about this, we've talked about it on the program. People complain about the DOD spending. There's a lot of waste and abuse in the DOD spending because it's it's education's got the same problem. Oh, it's for the kids and the in-classroom teachers, and none of that money ever gets in a classroom and goes to the administrative state. There's massive bloat in the DOD system. Sometime in the next few years, some people think it may have already happened, depending on the numbers, the interest on the national debt is going to be more than our DOD spending within the next few years. The entitlement spending is like we're not even talking about the actual monetary problems of the country whatsoever because nobody will politically touch it. It's just sitting out there like this big grenade that's waiting to go off. No, we're thinking about we can talk about it. We're thinking about canceling school lunch programs that have a, a large uh, amount of support that says that this increases the educational outcomes down the line for kids in these programs, which means that they're more productive members of society, less likely to have truancy and other sort of behavioral problems. To me, that sounds like a long-term investment worth having, but yet that's the debate that we're having right now in the halls of Congress. I think that uh, uh, a phrase that comes to mind is how I feel about this, penny wise and pound foolish. It's more than just that though, Stephen Popovnik joining us. When it comes to something like that, I did the numbers on the show. Mm -hmm. What the government spends on healthcare is a massive amount of money. Well, you know, one way you do, you get healthcare costs down, you do preventative care. It's more money up front, mm -hmm. but you have kids that eat halfway decent. Mm -hmm. You have kids that learn a good habit of, hey, let me eat a square meal in the middle of the day for my healthy, re you know. You support I, gym I activities so they, so they exercise. Uh, yeah, God forbid we give them some vocational training in school so they actually have a skill on top of whatever else they learn in school. I mean, so they that's have also, to go back on. you know. I learned how to change oil when I was in high school through the mechanics class that we had. Guess what? I mean, I can't do it now, but if I, if, if I could remember those lessons, then what? I wouldn't have to pay people to change my oil in my car. Here, This will blow your mind. When I was in elementary school, we got a new playground. Guess who laid all the gravel into the playground? The students did it. Well, they literally brought the, they brought the dump trucks in, dumped it, and the third and fourth graders went out there and spread all the gravel. They, they would lose their minds and stuff was, like that. I was about to say Boy Scouts because that sounds like an Eagle Scout project, but, you know. No, uh, this was the school. They're close. just like third and fourth grade is going to do the playground gravel. Okay, cool. Let's do it. By the way, our playground was gravel. Y'all yeah. complaining about that foam stuff. We had a, we thought the gravel was an upgrade. I, I'm no, going to say, I, I bet those third and fourth graders had a blast doing it too. Yeah, we had fun with it. Hey, we. I, I swear to God, you're an economist. You're into infrastructure. We went and saw the new bridge on Route 4 get built in Gasaway. What I'm telling you is we literally had a field trip to go see pavement. That's how country we grew up. <laughs> I think I had a couple of those field trips too. Yeah, it's educational. Sure, it's great. But back to the spending with Stephen Popic, our economist friend. How do we ever get around to dealing with the entitlements now? Because we went through the numbers. The actual revenue of the government compared to the GDP is actually really pretty good. So if you were just doing your budget, what you spend on what you make, you're doing fine. But when you throw the national debt piece in there and the entitlement and how it's growing exponentially, that's the thing nobody wants to talk about either party, any, any ideology, nobody wants to discuss it. How do we talk about it? Because at some point math wins, right? Economist. 
math wins, but votes win before math. So you're talking about one of the challenges, right? You have to, who are the primary beneficiaries of the mandatory spending? Um, you know, that's Social Security um, and Medicare for the most part. Largest Those, voting group in the country too. So you have to, you have to have a conversation with that group to say, how can we help future generations? Because the debt load that we're having is unsustainable. And what sacrifices can you make? And unfortunately, um, the, the, these are not the greatest generation that made a lot of sacrifice. Um, that's the generation that grew up afterwards. You know, there's, there's a lot of attitude from the younger generations that the older generation says, well, I got mine, so I'm not going to worry about it. There's a lot of also, if we want to actually have maybe something to, to help start bridging the gap here, education can help. Um, for example, um, I have seen there's a generational divide in the expectations of what housing costs are. If you ask the younger generations how much it costs to have a two-bedroom house or a two-bedroom apartment, by and large, they get it pretty pretty right. You know, if you ask the older generations, they by and large get it very wrong. And so their beliefs about what the cost of housing is, which is, by the way, the largest cost that families encounter in a normal budget, right, uh, in this country, um, that difference in belief, right, well, I don't understand how you can't afford a house. I can't. I remember when I paid $15,000 for a house. You know, houses, what, they're only worth $75,000 now, right? No, no, no. They're a lot more expensive than that. So it, people come with beliefs based on their own experiences. They become grounded in those. And you know that we react very poorly to receiving contrary information, right? And we, and we have a negative reaction to that. Um, that and, and that's true for a lot of folks across, you know, from a lot of different varieties of backgrounds. But it really does come down to we have to have an honest conversation about educating, about what the current status is. What are the current costs of living? What's was the current cost of carrying this debt, right? And what what can we do? And it has to be a partnership. But you know, again, then you also have to convince people to vote against their own present day interests. I think that's a political problem that I know I can't solve. You mentioned housing. I know that's your bailiwick. I want to get into it real quick before we let you go, though, because one of the parts of the housing debate that we don't talk about enough is, and I've tried to do perspective on this program with it, is it's a multiplier of other problems economically and also socially and also politically. When you have a housing crisis, it is a compression effect on pretty much any other problem you have politically, economically or socially. 
We know this because we can see it in real time. Our friends up in Canada just talked about this on the program. They have an absolute crisis with housing and corporate right now. Our friends in the UK, almost all our UK contributors that are young, we have on every single one of them want to talk about housing. Why? They can't get it. They can't find it. And it's affecting their careers and their decisions. And it's really hard. If you have a housing crisis and you just talked about this, you were tweeting about this a couple months ago. The entry level part of housing in most cities and municipalities is pretty hot, that entry level area. And then it cools off as you go up. There's a real problem with this because if you have the rising working generations, the 20 and 30 year olds, and they can't, we've seen all the data in the world. If they can't get into some kind of a stable housing situation pretty early in life, that affects things like wealth building, that affects things like retirement building, that affects things like generational wealth to their children. One of the things about the boomers is they inherited those cheap houses that the greatest generation bought cheap, and then they get them through inheritance and other things, right? That changes your economic outlook in a big hurry. Housing can wreck every part of your economy in a big hurry. It can cause a brain drain with those younger generations. That's why housing is so important to pay attention to because that's a big flashing red light for 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Not just because people are buying and selling houses, but it starts affecting everything else. It does. So when we think about a well-functioning labor market, right? With, uh, and for, for readers, you know, not familiar with the macroeconomic theories of labor markets. Um, it, all this really means is firms that are out there looking for people that are going to fit the jobs that the firm has, and obviously people looking for jobs. If you um, have a housing market that makes it difficult to enter into, to find housing, to find housing at an affordable level, that creates a friction, that's what we call it, on the matching between employers and employees. In other words, the firms are not going to get the first best or second best candidates for the jobs that they are wanting to fill because the best candidates can't move to the city, right? Um, they can't afford to do that. And so you're left with, you know, you have poor matches. You know, maybe starting off, you don't notice that effect because so maybe it's a 1% productivity decline. That seems pretty small, right? 10, 20 years down the line, that's a pretty big change, right? And how your firm is operating. Firms, a lot of firms operate on razor thin margins. You know, for example, Costco, company that I love. Uh, if you look at their uh, earning statements and profits and loss, they are essentially selling their product at cost plus overhead to deliver that product. That almost all of their gross and net profit is because of the membership fee. That's it. That, you know, so those are razor thin margins. So again, like I want people to consider with housing, if you had a well-functioning housing market where people were able to come in, get housing in your area, they can move there for jobs, they can help grow the economy. What we're seeing in a lot of places, people talk about the flight of folks from California. It has nothing to do with the politicalness of California. It has almost everything to do with the high cost of housing and inability to locate housing in areas that have labor markets that are attractive. But that's political, right? Like San Francisco, deep blue city, very liberal city, one of the most liberal city, 
they have some of the worst NIMBY laws anywhere you find anywhere. They can't build any housing. So it is political because they set the housing policy. I know it's not as strict, Rhett, because you have you know NIMBY Republicans too, but there is a political element to that. It, just doesn't, number, fit yes. the it doesn't fit the national political narrative, mm -hmm. though, because you have to get into these municipalities. And why? Because the, the data is firm. It's not so much an ideology. It's an age and income thing. The older you are and the better off financially you are, the more likely you don't want affordable housing anywhere near you. I, I think that's a true statement. Something I've encountered here in my local, my local hometown of Alexandria, Virginia. You know, um, it, it's hard to argue that we want to build another complex where we have, you know, a hundred designated affordable units, right, to help out folks of low to moderate income means and support that with, you know, a lot of higher income folks living in that apartment complex. And you hear things about how the character of the neighborhood's gonna change and about how the playgrounds aren't going to be safe and, and you know, um, other arguments that don't hold up in the face of research. But folks, you know, say, and they say, well, we wanna support people's getting affordable housing. We've seen it in Alexandria. We wanna support it, we do but just not here in my neighborhood. Well, it, it doesn't work like that. If you support affordable housing policies, like I do, wanting to give homeowners options on how they can uh, utilize their property as they best see fit, for example, by letting them build an accessory dwelling unit, a small house that they can rent out, letting them build a duplex or a triplex on a property that was a single family house, not forcing them to do this, but giving them the economic incentive and reality that they could. Not only can that better off the family that owns that property, but by providing more affordable opportunities for others, it helps create that stability for other families. That creates your entryway and gateway. But even these simple little nudges seem to run into a lot of, as you said, nimbyism, which is, you know, what, I guess one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about, about housing, Andrew, um, is that I found that being a YIMBY or a NIMBY um, is not well predicted by which party you vote for in November. <laughs> and so uh, for, for, for a government bureaucrat like myself that wants to be neutral, that's a great opportunity for you to affect policies, right? But not, not get into the politics of it. And the, the more I've done this it. over the years and the more I've talked to people, the thing about the housing thing is it is such a you know, force multiplier to future growth, or it can be a force multiplier to future problems. And it's one or the other. It's never neutral because it's one of those things, you know, it's like a you know, athlete. You're getting better. You're getting worse. There's no such thing as staying the same, right? That's housing. It's getting better. It's getting worse. There's no such thing as neutral. You have to be building housing or you have to be, you know, right sizing it. If you're in a struggling community where you need it, look, there's places where you need to bulldoze a bunch of houses. West Virginia just did this. They had to get a block grant from the government and they consolidate like all these houses in these different municipalities. They can't Detroit, afford to do it. Detroit's and done that. Detroit's done that. So there, it goes both mm -hmm. ways, but that's all part of the policy of understanding what you're doing and getting past the buzzword. Stephen Popic, we love talking to you about all these economic issues. Appreciate your insight on it. Let folks know what you've got going on, how they can keep up with you. And until we see you again next time on Herd Tell, how they can get all the insightfulness like is AEW really the Freedom Caucus of Professional Wrestling. Wow, the Freedom Caucus of Professional Wrestling. Talk Ooh. a big game, accomplish nothing.
<laughs> well, they did manage to bring back CM Punk for a cup of coffee and then kick him back out again. So I mean that that's something. Um, you can I mean you'll you know you can reach me you know uh, any anything on Hertel on Ordinary Dash Times is Moto Economist, uh, which is my handle. You can find me on Twitter as Moto Economist. Uh, I guess they call it X now. I don't really know what to call it. Uh, I don't post there that often, but I when I do, I do post a little bit about housing then and there. Uh, and as always, I'm always happy to help out and talk with Andrew. Um, so what I got going on, teaching a little girl how to play soccer. That's important. I love little kids soccer because it's so funny. They they almost never get the ball. They just run around and kick each other and enjoy it to high heaven and have fun running around. Like four, five, six-year-old soccer is just one of the funnest things in the world to watch. Uh, uh, yeah. Stephen Poppick, great talking to you, buddy. Appreciate the time. Yeah. <laughs>to the new glasses i got bifocals now what the hell is that anyway i've got new glasses i've got new prescriptions so i've ordered a couple of new ones yeah i got the bifocals with the honeycomb thing so it's not like the blend or the line it's all through the whole thing see but it took like a whole day to get used to it because they're like it'll take you a day to get used to it because your eyes gotta adjust to it but now it's like focus, yeah yeah now you can't see anything without them it's really annoying but the joys of being old the joys of wearing glasses yeah. Oh, well, I I, wa- I wear them for my screen time anyway because my dad had the macular degeneration surgery and I don't want to yeah. ever do that. So I, I've always wore glasses, but my vision's actually good. I just have this stigmatism now where I'm not adjusting from far to near fast enough. I still have like 20-20 vision. I just, when you go from the one yeah. to the other, it won't do Well, my mom's got cataracts and hopefully she'll be having surgery for it next year. And if it's like a good surgery, it'll be, she'll be able to like see properly without glasses. I just can't imagine that. That's so weird to me. Dad had to lay face down for 22 days after his macular surgery. Oh, gosh, that's a lot. You have no idea because he's a go, go, go guy. It was it was torture. It was terrible, oh, but God. it worked. He's hell, and I would hate that. Yeah, well, we, we got him a massage table so he could lay face down with his face open with like a tablet and his books and stuff so he could read. Because yeah. if Dad can't read, we're just going to have to take him out back and shoot him. He wouldn't be able to <laughs> tolerate him. All right, let's knock this out. Right, welcome back to Herd Tell. Catching up with our friend Sarah Stuck from Over Yonder. Uh, I won't say where, but she's up there on the mid-coast of England somewhere observing the hot mess that was the U.S. GOP primary debate. We're going to get a Brit's take on it. She wrote it up for our friends over at elections-daily.com. How are you, Sarah? Great to have you back. If there's one thing I love, it is bullying the Americans and the French. Yes, spoken like a true monarchist, but we'll hash that out some other t- hey your 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 king was over there speaking in french to the french i don't know how that made you feel but you know bob in restoration when no 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 enough of that we got a napoleon movie coming out that's enough that's enough out of you historically inaccurate napoleon film where josephine is much younger than napoleon even though she was a decade older than him in real life cougar cougar josephine has not been fleshed out in the movies yet they need to work on that that would be an interesting oh wait they already got a French president with an, you know what, let's just leave that alone. That's going to go downhill really quick. Um, all right, fair's fair. Usually when we're talking to you, 
um, we're talking about your hot mess of a thing, but we'll let um, the conservatives and the labor and Rishi Sunak et al. off the hook for today because you watched our GOP primary. I watched it as well. I did a little bit of coverage on it on the show, but this was just a hot mess. But you tell me your overall perspective. I just feel sorry for everybody in America. I mean, we have prime ministerial debates, but it's not really. I mean, our first one wasn't until 2010. So we're like 50 years behind you guys on that front, which I feel is actually a good thing. When people say, oh, Theresa May didn't go to debates or Boris Johnson didn't go. I kind of get it because I feel like debates are a really, really bad way of judging someone's politics. I, I get it, but I just think it's a bad way of doing it. And I think this debate has really showed that. Yeah. And I, I watched the ones, um, you know, the conservative debates when they changed leaders, when Theresa May stepped down. I watched all that. Um, it was interesting. It was very, very different. Now, of course, it would be. It's a parliamentary system. You know, they're all members of parliament. They're all colleagues. They all know each other. Um, so it's a very different dynamic. But it is an interesting juxtaposition of how they structure it, how they approached it, how they had strategy of it, and also the form and the decorum and the way it was produced and presented on television. I forget what channel it was. I think it was on all of them. But I watched those debates very, very different than what we do. Yeah, I think we are less showmany. I mean, we've got Theresa May. It's going to be less showmany, let's be fair. So it's not as exciting or interesting in terms of entertainment. It's probably better, as in more stuff probably gets debated properly. But your guys, it's just kind of like, oh, look at me, I'm the best one. It's very like, it's a very American thing. It's like, you, yeah, you get it. You get that the Americans did it quite early. All right. The elephant in the room for this debate, you give me your take on it, was actually who wasn't there. Donald Trump, of course, is currently, you know, way ahead in the polling. He's ahead in all four of the early state polling, which if he wins three or four of those, that thing's pretty much done. He wasn't there. You have the outside perspective. You tell me, how does it hit you now that he did? He didn't go to the first one. It didn't hurt him any. He didn't go to this one. It's probably not going to hurt him any. I suspect now he's not going to go to any of these. How did it hit you, the Donald Trump absence? Because that really kind of loomed over the whole thing. I think it was kind of a good thing for the candidate because I think he would have been such a magnet of energy that he would have been the most hooked about, even if he'd got like the fewest amount of you know lines, fewest amount of focus, less questions asked to him. Yeah, I think because... Whether you like Trump or not, he's very funny. And when it comes to debates, he's very quick. He does know how to, you know, make a good joke. Whereas Mike Pence tried to make a bloke about a joke about sleeping with a member of the teachers union because his wife Karen's a teacher. And it's just like, oh, sweetie, you tried. Bless your heart, as the Southerners would say. Whereas Trump, I think, could have made made a funny joke. Pence, it was just quite embarrassing. And to be honest, I don't think Trump really needs the debate. I don't think any of them need the debate. But when you're that far ahead in the polls, yet you're still facing criminal charges, you don't need to go. So, like, fair enough to him. He's probably doing whatever he's doing, legal troubles, golf, whatever. I get it. I totally support his reason not to. Obviously, you know, it's easy for the candidates to knock him when he's not there. If he was there, would they have been so on him? I don't know. It's funny, too, because Sarah Stook joining us from elections-daily.com it's funny because you could see the palpable need of the other candidates to have Donald Trump to 
get the what we what they call in wrestling the shine off him. You put the unknown guy with the big star, and they get some shine, and they get known, right? Chris Christie is begging Donald Trump to pay attention to him so he can get some shine. Um, a couple of the other ones, Ron DeSantis took some measured shots, but some shots at Donald Trump for not being there. They didn't seem to have a tr- problem saying that he should have been there. That seems a little safe, but anything more direct criticism. Very few of them did, and when they did, it was the Chris Christie, Donald Truck can line that just did not go over well at all. I don't think anybody. It seems like they need Donald Trump a lot more than Donald Trump needs the debates right now. Yeah, it's very much an attention-seeking. I mean, I think the two thirds Donald Duck line was quite good. I imagine he probably practiced it beforehand. It wasn't like an off-the-cuff remark. If it had been off-the-cuff, it was more impressive, but he probably practiced it beforehand, like the, the teachers' union joke. Probably definitely fine. There's no way Mike Pence could think of anything like that. Let's be realistic here. Yeah, there was like I definitely think if he was there, they may have tried to go for him, but they he would have just lashed back. It's a lot easier than when he's not there and then he'll lash out at them on Truth Social later on. And it's you know it reminded Christie and I said this publicly and I said it on the show Christie reminded me of when Elon last spring was just begging Donald Trump to get back on Twitter. That's kind of how it felt with Christie. It's like he's begging Donald Trump to pay attention to him so he can lobby because that's his whole you know raison d'etat or however it is those French say it. Since you want to bring up the bourbons. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Let's just go down this list because you wrote kind of a straight review of the issues and stuff, but I don't know that the issues was the subject matter here as much as the individual people. Let's just kind of go down the list here a little bit of folks. One candidate that folks thought did really good in the first one seemed like he really struggled on this one. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. How did he hit you? I think he's a likable person. He seems like a nice guy. 
which I think is nice. It's good that we have nice people. I mean, he might be a totally horrible person in real life. I mean, you don't know. But he seems affable, seems like a, you know, he comes across as like the compassionate candidate, like, oh, I was raised in a single parent household as an African-American. I understand how it is. I did appreciate how he did, like, say, look, I have been discriminated against and did discuss things like slavery when I think there's an expectation of, Republican minority candidates not to discuss that kind of thing or to at least downplay their status as a minority. And I appreciate that I think he had he was right to say that, especially since people make awful comments at minority Republicans about them being minorities and Republicans saying you know, horrendous things to them. But he's just not got you can't see him on the world stage. And again, I know a debate isn't the best way to, you know assess a candidate but he hasn't really you know got the you know foreign policy experience yeah he's been ahead of a few committees in the senate but like they did straight up asking you know what what have you got to bring to the table and i just don't think he could really answer properly which you know may not be a bad thing there are you know have been plenty of politicians who have not had any you know real political experience you know zachary taylor was a soldier we've had quite a few soldier presidents who weren't really into politics but yeah i just don't think he really has a shot just yeah in the senate he's fine but and also the fact he's single i still think a lot of americans expect family values presidents like cory booker had his girlfriend out and then they broke up and i still think americans still tend to go for a person who's married with kids however many marriages however many kids it is i still think they like they sort of a bit more comforted by somebody who's married and had kids and i think that's and i don't think that's necessarily an indicator of a good president but i think that's what americans think i might be wrong but that's what i sort of glean from it all right, you're the beat reporter for the Nikki Haley beat for Elections-Daily. This is the other half of the South Carolina contingent. Aside, she had the line of the night with, you know, telling uh, Vivek, rhymes with snake, rhymes with fake, that every, every time he talks, she feels dumber, which was a great, probably the best line of the night. My concern with her and Tim Scott together is when, you, when they're both in an early state and they're both from the state, they're going to kind of cancel each other out. There was that moment on stage, and I think it happened to us in real time, where it was just Nikki Haley and Tim Scott arguing. I, honest to God, could not tell you what they were arguing about because they were just arguing over top of each other. And it was the physical embodiment of what a lot of us that follow politics thought. They're going to cancel each other out in South Carolina. They're going to wind up second and third or third and fifth or something, and that's going to be that. And we physically saw it right in this debate. Yeah, because I get a lot of Nikki Hale stuff. I get like the emails, which really helps when I do my weekly diary. So I get a lot of like Nikki Hale stuff. So I'm sort of, that's like the candidate I'm most aware of, as it were. Um, a couple of people have commented on Twitter about her, and it'll be interesting what other people think. A few people seem to think she came off as a bit mean, a bit scolding. Somebody negatively compared her to Hillary Clinton, for example, saying like she just seemed like she was sort of a bit harsh, a bit telling people off well i think she was definitely tougher in this debate whether she thinks she has to be tougher because she's the only woman on stage or that's you know how she's sort of coming out of it which i thought was interesting again i think she seems like a likable person you know she's always you know tweeting and talking about her family and i think she has you know the political experience she's worked with the un she's been a governor so she's got sort of both political debate foreign policy debate 
And I think, you know, she wouldn't be the worst candidate in the world. But it'd be just very interesting to see, A, who she'd pick as her, you know, her ticket mate, because that will always, because there'll be people who won't vote for her because she's a woman. Let's, you know, there are still people who won't vote for people if they're atheist, Muslim, Jewish, gay women. And I think that's something she would definitely have to factor in. But I'd just be interesting to see how she went, would go up against Biden, because I feel like he's not, she's not really in his orbit in the way maybe Trump and DeSantis are. So if she ever did get further than she did, I'm just not sure how that would play out. And I would be interested to see, you know, what a Haley biden match would be like. Yeah, it'd be an interesting juxtaposition. What about Mike Pence? You just mentioned him. <laughs> okay, I've already got my bias on the table. I, I've, I've got all kinds of issues with Mike Pence. I think he's one of the phoniest politicians I've ever seen in my life. I've got years of book on what he is and what he says, and they don't match up. He does this, I called it the Pence Priolette, where everything good about the Trump administration, it was our administration, everything bad, it was that dastardly Donald Trump, like he doesn't want the credit or the blame. You know, he, he does this little rhetorical thing. Our administration, when he wants it to be, is like, I broke with Donald Trump when it was bad. It's like, no, dude, you stood beside him for all but three minutes. Just chill out. I, I think he came off terrible in this debate. He was so cringy when he tried to do humor. He's so canned, so practiced, so measured, so just utterly precious. I, you know, but I'm biased. I don't like the man. You tell me what you think. Um, well, I don't want to sort of be too judgy about the candidates because it's not my election. And as a Brit, I can I feel like I can have opinions on the people, but I don't want to be too forthcoming because it is an American election. It's your guys' choice. It's not my choice. But I agree, he shouldn't try to be funny. There are some politicians who just should not try to be funny and he's probably like number one up there i think he's trying to be a bit jimmy carter i'm conservative you know jimmy carter wasn't you know folksy i'm dedicated to my wife and my kids he's trying to do that whole i'm like the proper family values conservative politician because you know if you're comparing to trump who's married three times and the fair with a born star not exactly you know the perfect evangelical candidate and that's what you know i think pence is trying to go for the evangelical vote which I think he's probably more entitled to because, you know, he does the whole family values, goes to church, whatever. But he's just so boring. And again, you know, you shouldn't judge him based on just one debate, but he's so boring. You, you can't see him. I mean, he'd get this, the, like, the bureaucratic stuff done. Like, it'd be all right in meetings with the Joint Chiefs and, you know, meeting the King and whoever else. But I just don't see it. I just can't see Mike. I mean, the only thing he's got going for it is that he's a white male, which is, you know, apart from one president, has been every president. So he's got like that look down. But, you know, maybe 20 years ago, 100 years ago, fine. But no, I just don't think he's got anything about him. And he's just, he's just not funny. It's just quite painful to watch. It was so cringy when he started trying to get in on the jokes. When you're delivering your jokes, Mike Pence, there's, Timing is more important than the punchline. Any comedian will tell you that. When you can sit and watch the wheels turn in your head as you try to deliver the line and you do the hand motions and you switch stances at the podium right before you deliver the joke, that ain't going to work, buddy. You might want to work on that. Find a mirror. Work on that. Um, Doug Burgum, who's the governor of North Dakota, I'm going to give him some credit and then I'm going to crush him. 
I actually appreciated when he actually answers questions because he was one of the few on the stage who actually answered the questions that he was asked of and gave substantial answers, whether you agreed or not. He actually sounded like he knew what he was talking about and he answered the questions thrown at him. I appreciate that. That was well done. He also did the thing that people who get behind do too much of where he starts getting shouty from the corner of, you know, respect my authority, give me microphone time to the point Dana Perino told her he was going to turn her, turn his mic off, which is a really bad look. Um, he's polling uh, roughly equivalent with diphtheria. So he's not going to win, but he was there. He made the stage for the second debate. We'll see if he makes the next one. Doug Burgum, any thoughts? He kind of like the substitute teacher who can't control the class. That is yeah, what I'm that's a good one. From him. Cool. And here's another one. He seems like a nice guy. And I agree he seems competent. I don't know much about North Dakota politics, but he seems like he's probably quite a competent governor. And he seems to know his stuff. And, you know, last time we were talking about the teachers' unions, he was pretty respectful of teachers. He didn't really go after the union, teaching unions, the same way as his compatriots did. But he's not got a snowball's chance in hell. So I think he should just, like, bow out. Because, I mean, he's not even going to steal votes from anybody. Let's be realistic here. We already talked about Chris Christie, so we'll skip that. Uh, he was for Trump before he was against him, and now it's all Trump all the time. So I'm not going to waste any more time on our friend Chris Christie. The person most people thought came off the best, and I agree, I think he came off the best because he's one of the few that didn't have any silly moments. And he had that great moment at the end when they asked that ridiculous, one of the worst questions I've ever heard in a day in my life of, write down the name, like, no, this is dumb, we're not doing this. That was a good line. Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida. You got to take the context. He's been in the race. He's been the number two since he got in the race. He's not moving in the polls except in the wrong direction. If you look at the polling, that anti-Trump vote is just bouncing between DeSantis and Haley and back to DeSantis, and it's not really going anywhere. He did the best of this group, but again, Trump wasn't there. Did he really do anything to change his current situation of being a distant second place? I'm almost disappointed, I put into this out in a different podcast, that I'm almost disappointed in DeSantis in that he seems to have lost his shine. As a governor of Florida and a campaigner in Florida, he made Florida a supermajority. He won by an absolute landslide when the Republicans didn't do as well as expected last year. And I think because if he stuck, stuck with governor of Florida, he'd be much more of like a consolidate around him. But... He's not a natural debater, and I'm going to say this again and again, it's not the right way to, you know, choose your candidate, it's by election. I think he'd be definitely competent, but it's a different ball game when you're in Florida, when you've got a super majority, a lot of voters, versus when you're president, when you're against maybe a Senate and a Congress who are majority Democrat, say you've got majority Democratic governors. I think it will be a lot harder for him, and that's probably true with any you know, governor in California, Newsom gets away with stuff because, you know, it's a majority blue state. It's the same kind of thing. So, yeah, I'm almost 
disappointing him. I think if Trump wasn't in the race, he'd be like ahead by quite a long ma uh, margin. I think he's just sort of praying that Trump, you know, gets out of the race. But, you know, I don't think anything but death can stop him because, you know, there's no reason he, he has to be out if he's indicted or anything. There's no law against it. So he could be in a prison cell running. It's what Eugene, Eugene V. Debs did in the early 20th century. And Trump's got that power. So, yeah, I think he's just pe pre more praying for Trump to go out. But I wouldn't say any of them had a brilliant night, but I agree he seemed to sort of be less silly. I think he sort of knows his limitations and that he's not funny. And I think he's best to work with that. He knows he's not got the jokes. He keeps away from that. And I think that's probably pretty sensible. Here's your problem with Ron DeSantis. He's sensible. He's he's a good candidate. He's up against a force of nature in Donald Trump that defies logic. There's Trump does not have support because of policy or because of ideology. You're dealing with a personality and a movement and emotions and people that have five, six years invested into him, seven years now, as we flip the calendar here. You're not going to win that fight with policy and being a good and competent governor. That's that's an apples and oranges thing. It's just not a fair fight. That's a crossbow and a gunfight. It's just not going to work. Is that a fair way to lay it out? Yeah, I mean, definitely, because I think, like, DeSantis, before, like, the whole election, he was, like, a hero with even, like, Trump Republicans saying that he's very good at his job. And I think he's got the policy credentials. He's got the, you know, experience generally. Obviously, you know, things like foreign policy. He can argue maybe he was in the military, but not in sort of the diplomatic side of it so i think yeah he's definitely the right candidate in that respect and again if trump wasn't in the race i think he'd be high, sort of high in the polls by quite a margin but like you said trump's such a fascinating character in that you know you see his you know his town halls his events and like there's such as like this almost like Beatlemania elvis hysteria around him which i find he's a fantastic showman he's he's brilliant at putting on a show whether that makes a good president or not is you know here nor there but you saw it in 2016 when you get to hillary who's basically a robot and that's probably the nicest way i could put it for hillary clinton he's sort of my political bogeyman but you know if you compare the two even like that line because you'd be in jail during the 2016 debate what a brilliant line yeah, because it fed into his base. And the problem with this whole GOP primary, and you've been covering it, you know what I'm saying here. I don't see any evidence that the base of the party in a sufficient number to oust him wants an alternative to Donald Trump. I think the premise of the primary is wrong because he, he's polling at 50 percent, but he only needs 25, 30, 35 percent in a crowded primary to win. And the math just isn't there from what we're seeing so far. And I think Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and these others, they're not going all that hard after Trump because they're still hoping he's just magically going to drop out or go away or be removed from the field or something's going to happen. We're in October. We're voting here in, in three, four months. And it I don't think it's going to happen. And I think folks need to adjust their expectations and prepare themselves for disappointment. Yeah, exactly. You know, he's not going to go out, you know, only if something really tragic happened and I wouldn't wish that on him. So, you know, it's going to happen. It's just, again, it's so... I know you've got, like, sort of showman politicians around the world, like Balsarano uh, and Duarte in the Philippines. But, again, it's so uniquely American. Like, people compare Boris Johnson over here to Trump, but it's not even in the same league. It's not even close. 
he's w very one of a kind. Yeah, Sarah Stook joining us. All right. Lastly, somebody who I thought really embarrassed themselves on multiple levels, uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy. <laughs> Where do you even want to start with this? I, I don't understand how people fall for this. You can Google this guy for three or four minutes and find out how he built his businesses, how he did. It was a lot of pump and dump. There's nothing really real about this guy. He he says completely different things than he said a year ago in his own very book that he used to promote himself. I don't get it. But then again, you know, I dig into this stuff and I don't get wrapped up in it. But a lot of people seem to be listening to him. And by a lot, I mean, you know, he is, you know, polling high single digits in some polling. He's not going to win. And every polling vote for him is going to Trump. Let's all be adults here. What's your take on him? He's like the kid in class that tells the teacher he, they forgot to set homework or collect homework. That's the vibe I'm guessing. He's the sort of, you know how like there's the thing in media, like I'm not like other girls. He's like, I'm not like the other candidates. And he's said that. He was much nicer in this debate saying, oh, I respect the people that are just corrupted by a bad system. But you could tell that Scott and Haley really don't like him. I think there must just be like a South Carolina hatred for Ramaswamy. It's like a fly that you can't quite swat. That's the vibe I'm getting from the other candidates. If Trump was there, he'd be the target. But because he's not there, it's Ramaswamy. You know what was funny about it? Because he obviously talked to his people and the, the negatives from the first debate. And he heard that criticism like nobody likes you. So he was trying to do the self-depreciating humor of the, I know I talk too fast. But the funny thing about it is he's the whole guy who's running with the I'm not a politician line. He sounds the most like a politician of anybody on the stage other than Mike Robot Pence. It's like during like Bernie Sanders being like, oh, I'm not a politician, but he's been in power in the Senate for quite a few years. Anti-caucuses with the Democrats and he joins the Democrats just when he needs them for the election and goes back to being an independent. It's the same kind of thing. These politicians are not politicians, like people who've been in power for a very long time. It just befuddles me that we always seem to look. The Democrats did this with, you know, Andrew Yang last cycle. They always there's always this one outlier, wackadoo, crazy person that ends up rising in the polls because it makes good copy and it's interesting. And everybody's like, "Why are we doing this?" But we do it every election cycle. Yeah, it's like Bill Clinton being like, "Oh, I'm young and hip." He was the governor of Arkansas several times. Oh, Kennedy's young and hip. He was only four years younger than Nixon. It's not like he was like a decade younger. It's four years in it. Like it's like every cycle you're right. Like oh, I'm different to all the politicians, but they've been in the Senate, governor, whatever for years. There's very few who have like no political experience. Like Trump, to his credit, wasn't a politician. He didn't actually have like that experience. So I think he could get away with that line. But most of these ones can't. Stoke joining us with a Brit's perspective on the hot mess that was the G. Uh, just a final thought on this one. We figure, you know, we had this group. We're going to be down to five or six in the next one, hopefully more. I doubt Trump shows up to any of these now because he's not getting punished in the polls for it. In fact, he gained a little bit. So I don't think we'll see Trump in any of these. What do you expect in the next few weeks until we get to the next one? You know, they keep talking about DeSantis adjusting. They keep talking about who's going to be in second, third place. Everybody's betting the farm on Iowa. What are you looking for covering this race as we start to creep closer and closer to Iowa? There's no, you know, set 
path of doing things. 2008, Hillary Clinton entered the race. Everyone said, you know, she's a dead shot. She's Hillary Clinton. Then Obama comes in and wipes the floor with her. You know, you had 2000, John McCain versus George Bush. Like, every time there's, like, you never really know where it's going to be. They thought that Bush Sr. was going to win easily after the first Gulf War. Then that didn't happen. So, you know, and you don't know what's going to come up in the next few weeks. You don't know if there's going to be a major disaster, if something would escalate in Ukraine, you know, if there's going to be, if something's going to happen with Biden, with Harris, with any of the candidates that would force them to drop out. So, yeah, I, I just don't think you can really know what's going on. I just think it, you're just going to wait for the next one, assuming that maybe... Bergam drops out, perhaps. But other than that, I'm not even going to just like guess anything that's going to happen. We could be seeing something totally different. But what I still assume is Biden will still be president. Trump will still have legal problems, and that's it. Yeah, and I think they're going to have an oxygen problem for the next couple of weeks because the government shutdown is going to just suck all the oxygen out of the room for the news media for however long that goes. And it looks like it's going to be at least probably a couple of weeks, especially if we have, if we, if we depose the speaker of the house in the middle of it, that'll extend it another week or two. Cause I got to go through that process. Sarah Stuck, always appreciate your views, letting you take some free shots at us. Usually we have you on swing, take some shots at y'all over there, but we'll give them the day off. Let folks know how they can keep up with you. We're going to link to her coverage, uh, elections-daily.com. She did a, you know, straight down the middle reporting on it. Now we're getting her caller to add to it. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back, my friend. Um, Elections Daily, of course, um, for American politics coverage. The uh, Matlout for British um, Ordinary Times Pop Culture. So, yeah, any of those. Um, I will be continually hoping Nikki Haley makes it because that way I can do a weekly com com uh, column about it. But I'm sure I will cope whatever happens. But thank you as always. Love having you. Always enjoy talking. Sarah Stook, appreciate your time. You have yourself a good England day up there on the coast. I will. Yes, ma'am. That'll do it for this edition of Heard Tell. Wherever you are, you can join us through whatever medium you're listening to. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, we're even on some podcasts over in India. You folks in India, we see you on the stats. Welcome. Thank you. Drop us a line. We're all over the world and on any podcasting platform you can think of. Make sure you're subscribing and or following or whatever that platform calls it. That helps us keep track of you, lets us know how you're listening to the program. Make sure we can tailor it to get it to you. Heard Tell Show or my name, Andrew Donaldson, on any of those platforms, it'll come right up. But we have a one-stop shop for everything that we do, herdtell.substack.com. It's completely free. Subscribe. You get everything right into your inbox. Anytime I write, do a media appearance, do a new episode of Heard Tell. We also have Heard Tell specials. We're going to get back to doing the twice on Sunday recap shows. We also have a huge archive, so we're going to have some specials, some best of, things like that, and also some of the food writing from Yonder and Home. We're starting to re-up that as well. we got over 600 episodes of Heard Tell in the archive to start porting over. We're going to be working on that. So sign up for the Substack, please. Get you right in your inbox. Never miss anything. Doesn't cost you 
anything more than a click. Herdtel.substack.com. We'd sure appreciate it. And follow us on social media, Herdtel Show on the Twitter. Four for the Fires, my personal Twitter handle. No, we're not going to call it X, but if you could share us and let folks know that our programs we're checking out, we sure would appreciate it. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you real soon for the next Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. <laughs>